0: Of your bibles tonight would you turn to the 5th chapter of James James chapter 5 <clears throat> It's helpful when we or that we come to this text during the Christmas season because many of us I guess if we have children or have had children in our homes in the past this is the time of year you get really a first hand account of how hard waiting is like right? for little kids the minute it hits Thanksgiving. How many more days until Christmas? And maybe you've, you've been at a family gathering around Christmas time. There's a bunch of little kids, and maybe you've counted how many times you hear one of the kids say, "Can we open presents yet?" Is it time to open presents yet? And um, we try to pacify kids with empty platitudes, right? Well, we're we're going to eat first, and the kids are like, "Oh, good! I was hoping to eat first instead of be prayer, you know, open presents." So, have you ever been waiting for 5 p.m. on your last day at work before vacation? You've probably been there. Um, It's the longest day in the history of mankind, usually. We don't like to wait. None of us like to wait. I don't like to wait. You know that, right? Most people would just pull up. I don't like to wait. Believers are those who wait. We're waiting people. We wait for things that we wish were already over in the world, in our own lives. We wish they would end, and we're waiting for them to end. We're waiting for the promises of God to come true before our very eyes anyway. To take hold of our inheritance and eternal life. To see Jesus, to look Him in the eyes, to know that it's true, to know that it's the war is over. But sometimes waiting eats away at our faith. And when God calls us to patience, as He does in this text tonight, He doesn't give us empty platitudes to pacify us while we're waiting so that we stop bothering Him. He gives the Word of the One who does not lie and does not fail Himself. He gives us mercy and compassion. And so while we are waiting for the Lord's return and the end of sin and suffering, we cling to the promise of God that we might become patient people, holy, patient people, who testify, therefore, To His faithfulness and His presence. Let me pray. And we'll look at this passage together. Father, we come to You tonight as a waiting people. As a people You've called to patience. And as a people for whom patience does not come naturally. But Father, we have Your Word and we have Your promise. And I pray tonight as we walk through these verses together, You would bring to mind the reasons why we can be patient and why we should, because of You, our God, help me to speak to this end and help us all to hear. I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in verse 7 here, kind of right in the middle section of James chapter 5. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, I know we're two weeks removed here, but how is therefore functioning in this section? Especially, since if you can remember, if you look back, verse 6 was really an accusation. And then he says in verse 7, Be patient therefore. Well, be patient because of what? Because we've entered the last days. That was kind of the center Uh, foundation of the exhortation in verses one through seven towards repentance, even though it's unsaid. Be patient because of what? Because we've entered the last days. And because of this, because the world is going to get harder to live in for believers, we are going to face increasing and great temptation to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of King Jesus. The Lord is coming, however. But you and I normally are just One second, one circumstance, one very difficult situation away from scheming like Sarah did for Hagar to go into Abraham because we just don't believe that God is going to come through. Or we doubt so much that He's going to come through because He hasn't yet, as we understand it, that we get frantic, we get afraid, we get impatient. Jesus is coming. The fact that it was the last days was also the basis for the urgency in verses 1-6. to for those who are rich, that is, in particular, those whose hope is so much in their wealth that they are apparently mistreating and defrauding others, those who work for them, those in the body of Christ. And again, the lack of a direct, before in James, each time there's a warning or a heavy text given, there's this exhortation normally to repent, or at least we saw it in chapter 4. Here, you don't see that. So it, it doesn't mean no repentance is possible. It means that, the need for it is actually heightened. Like it it comes just as strictly as warning language in verses 1 through 6 since the hour is so late to be behaving the way they were in verses 1 through 6. Here, however, the call in light of His coming, again, is patience this time. He uses farmers for an illustration. They plant and they wait. They, They don't expect instant produce. Or an instant crop. They don't expect instant gratification on their work. They know how it works. Therefore, since they know, they're patient. They wait for the rain to fall in the soil at the right times established by God in nature. The early and the late rains then function like the coming of the Lord for the incentive to be patient. In the same way a farmer plants and tends his crops not expecting instant produce, but knowing things have to happen, most of which are beyond his control in order for them to grow. So we as believers must be patient, not expecting our faith to become sight right away or all the time, not expecting that we'll get all the answers and all the clarity that we want all the time, not expecting everything we pray for to be given to us. We as believers must be patient. We, we can't have it in our minds that we'll get heaven And all its benefits on earth. Jesus has promised that he will return. That's why we ought to be patient. That is when all that is wrong will be made right. When Jesus returns. That is when justice will come. That is when we'll become perfect. And we won't sin anymore. That is when we will no longer suffer trials. That is when you and I will finally lack nothing. Not before. That's what we know. From the word of God. So. Patience is the result of biblically informed, the proper expectations, just as the lack of patience is the result of unrealistic expectations. But maybe for believers specifically, patience is simply the crop of believing the promise. Once we believe that God is going to do what he says, just like he always has, we can't be fully or finally swayed from our faith then by the unknown. And realize that when we lose patience, when we get impatient over the littlest things, we're learning something about our own faith. Because if we we lose it in the little, in the mundane of every day, like I do, right? Then it's more likely that we'll lose it in the difficult things, in the hard things, over which we have zero control. So, you read in verse 8. You... Also, like the farmer there in verse 7, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The admonition to be patient, people, is not because patience is a virtue. The rationale, the reason to be patient, is the promise. The coming of the Lord is at hand. It's going to happen. And when we read a sentence like that from the first century church, from 2000 years ago were meant to understand how can he say that because that's what it felt like to live then. That's what it looked like to live then and the holy spirit didn't inspire Technically my coming isn't at hand The holy spirit inspired the lord is at hand because from the minute christ descended back to the father it, His return may happen at any moment at any time The coming of the lord is always at hand not because of history, but because god has said so So we're meant to understand that Christians in every age ought to genuinely believe they will be present for the Lord's return, since it's always going to look like the last days. That's because it is. So James says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. In in what? In the Word, beloved. The Word of God is promised that His Son is returning. Go to Him and ask Him to write that Word on your heart so that you live in light of it, you live by it, so that impatience that eats away at us doesn't creep in. Now, why would God not have us be impatient people? And I think verses 1 through 12 as a whole are teaching us that. And, and what we're seeing is that impatience creates dissatisfaction in our hearts and frustration. So, if we were talking about the need for patience in verses 1 through 6, if we're impatient, we start trusting in wealth to deliver what we want or what we think we need. Wealth will get it for us. That leads to, in the text, evil and murder and dishonesty and self-indulgence. Dulling our senses to the fact that we live in the last days. Weakening our ability to remember that the coming of the Lord is at hand right now. But notice what else in this section An impatient heart has the danger of causing. This is very interesting in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's always the same rationale. A lack of patience, an impatient heart, leads to grumbling. And James says... Grumbling is cancerous within the church, within the body of Christ. We don't think of it that way, but that's what the Bible says it causes. The church should not be a burden to us. beloved. Our churches, all of them, shouldn't be missing people that got angry about something they didn't get that they wanted and have left and gone to another one or left and don't come back to church at all, this is what impatience does. You could probably, if all the research was done and all the fact-finding was done, what it boils down to when people are mad and they leave is that they didn't get what they want. And they, they when, when we do that as people, when we don't get what we want, what do we do? Even in the church, we grumble. Others are going to hear about it. But the church isn't meant to be a burden. This can't become a drag for people to be a part of. The body of Christ. this, This family is not meant to add to our burdens other than the fact that we bear one another's burdens. But bearing the burden of people's grumbling because they're upset or disappointed or frustrated is not healthy for the body of Christ. This body is to help alleviate each other's burdens, not make them heavier. But again, what do people do when they don't get what they want? They grumble. They complain. They turn on each other. They get mean. It's, it's a very base carnal instinct in us. It comes naturally to us to grumble when we are made to wait or when we don't get what we want. You've experienced this. You've, you've We've experienced this Some of us have done it. Some of us have heard it, right? You've been in a restaurant. Food takes too long. What starts? Right? Every time. They finally bring the food. What, do you have to go butcher the cow? You know, just something like that. Do you have to go catch it in the lake? Just, you're going to hear. If you made me wait, you're going to hear about it, right? The impatience that causes grumbling. Is the result of thinking things should be this way and not that way. If we were doing James in one night, right? But you don't want me to try and preach five chapters in one night, we'd be here till Thursday. But if we were doing this all together, we would factor in right here what we read in chapter four verses 13 through 17 about planning and thinking what's going to happen and the sovereignty of God and that we don't take it into account. The impatience that causes grumbling is the result of thinking things should be this way, not that way, when our God is sovereign and is determining what happens when and what happens where. To the extent that when you and I are sitting at a light and it's red and it won't change, we are being sanctified. Right? We're being sanctified. We believe our own flesh that tells us we have certain rights which shall not be infringed upon I'm not talking about the government, the politics of our land. That, that's, I'm, I'm, that term sounds familiar. I, I know that. But I'm talking about in our own lives, we, we have certain rights which shall not be infringed upon up to and including the right to get our food quickly or to have the light change more quickly and have the person in front of us move and all that. Right? We imagine then how those base carnal instincts can infiltrate and damage a church. Because listen... A lot of what we do in a church is a matter of opinion and preference. Right? It it just is. And I'm not knocking that. I'm saying that's the reality. So it's very hard sometimes in a church not to grumble because so much of it is just someone's opinion or way that they prefer it to be done. And again, I'm not saying that means anybody that has an opinion is wrong and carnal. Not at all. I have them, right? I have preferences. Of course I do. I'm simply saying at no time Will it be what everybody wants it to be? We never, however, are to grumble about it. Right? This, this is cancerous to a church. It, it really is. I'm not, I'm not making that up. Right? It's very, very dangerous to a church. I mean, it, it, you, you experience this in different ways all the time. If I have one group of people telling me they want it this way, I have another group of people saying they want it that way. Well, who do I who do I go with? How do I make those decisions, right? How do I determine which way to go? And so this this can happen very easily. And like I was talking about this morning, uh, really that that the onus and in, in that one falls on the preacher, because as a preacher, let's say that you're preaching something and the people aren't getting it or don't react the way that you want them to, you start to grumble, at least to yourself and to others that will listen to you. And you get mad at your people and then you're preaching at them because they won't change at the rate you want. And so this is, this is all over. We're all caught up in this. So often the Bible is sanctifying us by showing us how naturally wrong we just are. Like our natural thinking, our natural, our gut response to things sometimes serves us very well. Most of the time is foolish. So we need to have our minds shaped by the Word. One of the fruits of that is going to be patience. Perspective. Right? What am I going to lose if it doesn't go my way other than the fact that I wish it was the other way? Well, that's that's not a reason to start grumbling and biting and devouring one another until we're consumed by one another. Paul writes it that way in Ephesians 4, I believe, 4 and 5. And notice what's when you talk about being tied into God's sovereignty, when we're grumbling, we're not acknowledging God's sovereignty. Notice once again that James puts the sin of grumbling now up against the return of Jesus Christ in verse 8. And I, I, I it just occurred to me, what is the major sin in Israel in the Exodus wandering before they enter the Promised Land? Why can't that group enter? grumbling complaining and and think of how mundane or seemingly harmless the grumbling is oh we have to eat meat again or eat this again we we should have we could go back to eat beloved it we don't change not fundamentally if any one of us would have been in the wilderness like i it cracks me up that that uh and i'm i'm being funny with my kids i'm not my kids don't really like steak except for Isabella. You, you have to be in a, in a funny position in life to have the opportunity to say, I don't want steak. Right? I had, I had steak like one time growing up. So I always got chicken. And then my father-in-law would always make me get steak. he be like, no, get him the steak. I ordered a i I'll never forget this. I ordered a six ounce once at Texas Roadhouse when Chris and I were dating. And my father-in-law said, get him the cowboy cut. That was my first 16-ounce. Phenomenal, but I'm saying you have nice options in life when you don't like steak. Is that? Am I making sense? Like, like no, I'd I'd rather just have the chicken nuggets. Well, man, that's there's such thing as privilege. It's like no, I don't want steak. I know it's subjective, but I hope I hope you understand that. Grumbling. Even when it seems... Here, here's the issue as we look at verse 9 there. Grumbling seems pretty harmless. It seems pretty natural. And is it really a big deal? It is. Because God says that's a form of judgment on things. Namely, on Him. Right? Notice, notice that connection He makes there. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged... Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Grumbling is judging. We're making a call about God's rulership when we're grumbling. And what we're saying in grumbling is, God, you are not doing a good job right now. Why? Because remember, God is sovereign over everything, even my planning. So if things don't go according to my plans and I'm grumbling, what am I complaining about? Who am I complaining to? The one who rules the universe by his sovereign hand. So, of course, we, we have to take it so seriously in our thinking that when we're complaining, it doesn't matter if the situation technically warrants complaining. It is frustrating to wait for things. It stinks when you want it to go a certain way and not because you're evil, not because you're carnal. You just prefer things that way and it doesn't work out. That stinks, and so you—you—in you, one sense, we we could feel very justified in our grumbling. The problem is that the Bible says we're not thinking deeply enough about it. We're judging God as a bad ruler, at the stoplight, in the drive-through, at church. We're—we're—we're we're ju- we're making a call about God's poor leadership. It's like when people like me yell at a coach on on TV. Like I really know the place he should run. I really know, and what am I doing when i'm complaining i'm, I'm talking i'm I'm questioning the coach's ability to coach a game so this it's it's we're making judgments that's why this is such an issue because Christ has set us free and forgiven our sins, and our God has made promises to us that he's going to keep. If that doesn't trickle down to where we can't sit at a stoplight. For a few seconds than we want to Without getting mad and steaming Something is wrong with us in the core of our hearts And I, I don't want to Overburden you tonight With the constancy Of our sin that's, that's really not what I'm doing We just want to be able to think biblically And recognize I should not let this fester I should not give in to this I, I can't give in to this God help me Forgive me Change my heart, right? We're judging our situation usually without all the information. We're treating others as though they are our slaves. And they should be doing things the way we prefer. The way that we want. How dare you not give me what I want, right? James says we're unrighteously judging people in this. And God's hand in our lives when we do this. That's why he brings up his judgment of us. And he says, the one who is the judge, by the way, that actually is the judge, he's about to return. Why are you acting this way? He's saying. So in patience, it's not simply a failure to acknowledge the sovereignty and the goodness of God in his providence in our lives. It's also denying the eminence of his the, the imminence of his return. You see what James is saying here? When you grumble, you are forgetting. That the judge is standing at the door. We're acting like we don't believe that he is or that he's taking too long. And impatience is not based in reality. Its priorities are not straight. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. So here's, a, here's another one. We Notice how many examples he gives here. We must really need them. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. It's steadfastness that leads to blessing, not grumbling. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Four times in this little passage, James refers to his audience as his brothers, or brothers and sisters. It it can be translated that way also. He's writing with a pastoral heart here. He's not speaking to them anymore or in this section like you guys are acting like unbelievers. No, he's reminding them here, remember who you are, he says to this congregation. They are believers. The problem is they're not believing the word in such a way that they're sufficiently submitting to it when it comes to grumbling. And again, grumbling is so much a natural part of our lives, we don't realize it's not been put under the Lordship of Christ. By subtly reminding them now with that word brothers that he keeps using that they are a part of the family of God. He's actually reminding them that you are the recipients of all God's promises. They are family. He says, you've been baptized into Christ. He's calling them back to what they know. He's reminding them of their identity that it comes from God. It doesn't come from the world. It doesn't come from their circumstances. Their joy is not to go up and down based on what they're going through to the point that they would grumble, even in the church among the body of Christ. And James isn't blind to the fact that patience, or the lack thereof, actually grows out of suffering. That's how patience is going to be developed. It, it In Romans 5, Paul says, suffering produces steadfastness. It produces faithfulness and endurance. We are going to suffer in this world. And Peter would say, don't be surprised when that happens. It's one of the most important practical texts in the Bible. Why are we surprised when we're suffering, when we're going through it? God, what are You doing? Do You love me? What do You mean? I, I, I said this is how it would be in this world. Why would you question it now? Right. So, the fact that we're going to suffer though, and suffering is very real and very intense sometimes, how can God seriously call us to patience With a straight face. Does he not know what it's like to have to endure things here? Lord, do you know what we're going through? You're in charge of the universe. You're sovereign. If you want me to be patient, then quit making my path so hard to walk. Maybe God knows better than us what makes us patient people. Beloved, God is not calling us to patience so that we're good little girls and boys who don't lose their tempers. God is calling us to patience because of who He is and what He has promised us and because it's all true. It's all true. So establish your hearts, James says. Settle down. Establish your heart. Shake off the frost from your bones. Breathe. Remember who it is that is telling us to be patient. Remember who that command is coming from. Our God and Father who has sent His Son to live and die and rise for us and will very soon return for us. And look where James goes for an example. This is where the text really gets at as He goes to the one human being in Scripture that apart from Jesus Himself may have been the one to suffer and lose the most. In other words, James is saying God does not discount what any of you are going through. It's not like He's unaware. In fact, do you want to know how steadfast we can actually be because God is who He says He is and has revealed Himself. Do you remember that guy named Job? Like, you have to go there. You have to go to the one person we can't compare ourselves to and say, I know what he feels like. Probably not. Right? Probably not. It certainly does happen that there are human beings that suffer horribly. Job is a little different because Job is the one guy for whom the audience knew why it was happening. And the protagonist had no idea, and if he did, it would not have helped. If Job knew why that was happening to him, I don't think it would have helped. And there's a reason God never tells him why it's happening to him. God's purpose and God's character are why Job was ultimately able to remain steadfast, even when all Job ended up finding out wasn't why, but that God was God and he was Job, and what was happening to Job didn't mean that God didn't love him or had forgotten about him. And so it's God's purpose and character as a compassionate and merciful God in verse 11 that is put forward as the reason we can be patient. What we can't do when we're tempted towards impatience that leads to grumbling and complaining and questioning and doubting God is forget or think that He isn't compassionate and merciful. And beloved, I know, you know, each and every one of you have learned in your own unique sufferings in your life, that it doesn't always feel like God is compassionate and merciful. Beloved, on the authority of the Word of God, though, He is. So, we have to learn to believe His Word more than the voice inside of us. I love that God doesn't make light of our suffering. Because he doesn't give us chicken soup for the soul so that we have a pep in our step when we're suffering. It's not what he says. I know that you are going through it. I am compassionate and merciful. I will not leave you or forsake you. That is the highest gift we can have in our suffering and in our trials and in the things that make us groan and make us impatient. That the God of the universe has bent low towards us, that's what He's given us, beloved. That's what we have. God doesn't. Again, it's 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 God's purpose and character as a sovereign, compassionate, and merciful God that is given to us as the reason that we can be or should be patient. God doesn't tell us to be. Virtuous in some vacuum of morality, right? We talk about this a lot. Just be like this because it's good to be like that, to like this, and it's bad to be like that. That's never the reasoning. And sometimes that is enough, right? Don't kill people because it's mean, right? I mean, sometimes it's very clear, but God tells us to be patient so that in verses one through six, we don't love money and believe we have to have money or we won't be okay. He tells us to be patient so that we don't get so impatient with our circumstances that we begin grumbling and complaining at our own brothers and sisters because they aren't meeting our needs and desires. Because, again, not because He just wants us to be morally upstanding people who are patient as another quality. He tells us to be patient because He is sovereign and because He is compassionate and because He is merciful. We don't know why. God does God does know why. We don't have all the information to make completely sound judgments most of the time. God does. We don't have the capacity to deal with all the ins and outs of why and all our other questions due to our limitations and our humanness. But God does. This is how He rules you. This is how He loves you. So establish your heart in Christ. Beloved, what else are we going to do as the waves rock this boat? God is the Lord of circumstances, even mine. God is in charge of all that's happening to the extent that He is working all these different things together for the good of those who love Him. It's not God making lemonade out of lemons. It's God ruling over the universe that you may receive the promise and know His love and mercy towards you. The sovereign God makes sure that what He knows are light and momentary afflictions, when put against the backdrop of eternity and the glory there, are preparing for us, working for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In 2 Corinthians 4. 17. We just feel the pain. We just try to pick up the pieces after we've suffered and gone through something. God is saying what you don't understand is that that situation is is doing something for you. Because I want the weight of glory for you when you come home to be more than you can possibly imagine. And this is the way I'm going to do it. We gain that perspective in 2 Corinthians 4.18 by not looking to the things that are seen, but to those things which are unseen. God says that will make you impatient, so stop staring at it. Stop focusing on it. Look to Me. We don't fix our eyes on what will make us impatient if we look at it. These things are not permanent. Nothing that's causing us suffering here is permanent. Nothing. Nothing. These things don't control our destiny. We are not in the hands of our circumstances. We are not the sum total of what has happened to us or of the choices we have made. Establish your hearts. beloved. love it. Settle down. Right. Settle down. Look to the one who is unseen by human eyes but is more real and permanent than what human eyes can see anyway. Our foundation, our rationale to be patient is who God is and what God has told us in His Word. It never changes. It's completely true. It comes from outside of us. We don't control it. We have nothing to do with it. We don't determine whether or not it has any truth or value. We cling to something that God holds, that God is, that God says is true, regardless of my circumstances or my feelings. Which are very real. Even Job didn't defect. But here's the thing that's interesting about talking about the steadfastness of Job. Because if you read, that, that's, that's what happens. This is a great example. Of that sentence, consider the steadfastness of Job. That is the perspective Jesus puts on the scripture. If you take the cross, like, like, if you go back and read the book of Job, you are not going to come away from the book saying, what a steadfast man that was. Other than that, he never cursed God. But when you lay the cross over it, when you look back at Job through the lens of the work of Christ, now you see how Job is an example of steadfastness. Job grumbled. A lot. Job grumbled. A lot. Just as any of us would have had we been in his situation. Elijah the prophet. In verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, Elijah grumbled. Samuel grumbled. Habakkuk grumbled all these prophets. Habakkuk really let God have it. You made these promises and here come the Was it the Babylonians for Habakkuk here or the Persians or the Assyrians? Here they come. Where are you? Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And they're all put forward as an example of steadfastness from the prophets, from Job. So what's the example? It's not, look, those guys were perfect. They weren't impatient. They didn't grumble. So look at them. That's not why we look at them. How are they an example of steadfastness? Because God held them tight in everything they went through. And now they are in eternity with Him. Steadfastness doesn't look like spiritual perfection. Steadfastness looks like all I have is you and you're enough. All I have is you. I don't know how to make sense of any of this, God, but you are with me and you won't leave me. That's, that, that's, that's all God is after here. God does not expect us to walk around smiling all the time like doofuses that don't know the world hurts. That, that, that's not spiritual maturity. It's fake. I don't trust the person that's always smiling. Right? What are you so happy about? Like, you ever been to a drive-thru? So there's all these reasons. The point is this with these examples. They didn't fail because it was hard. They believed that God was sovereign, first of all, four thirteen to seventeen. And that God was compassionate and merciful. That's steadfastness. They clung to the promise and He held them all the way through to the end. In their impatience, in their weakness, in their complaining and grumbling, I was with them. So have, go ahead, have the fight. I Don't say that disrespectfully to God. But that's not what I mean. But, but pour it out on Him. Tell Him, I didn't like this. That's not what I prayed for. But do it in faith. Right? I don't know what you're doing. And I don't like what you're doing. But I know you. So hold me close and help me through this. Again, he's got really big shoulders. He can handle it. That example that Jesus gives of the impatient woman that just kept coming to the judge. And and then it says finally because of her Basically, her annoying him, he went ahead and gave her what she wanted. You and I aren't going to annoy God. That's the whole point of the story. Just keep knocking, keep knocking. That steadfastness. I'm leaning into you until you help me. Be with me, God. You you, you lose a loved one, a dear loved one. You find out you have a horrible diagnosis or something, and, and you, you your spouse leaves you. Your your kids rebel. Something you know some, you. Look, you you press in. what are you doing i don't I don't understand, but I know you. I, I know you're compassionate and merciful, so let me see that. Help me. It doesn't mean God's going to make it stop or change it. But those are the times you when it gets real, when you really remember that these things are true, because most of the time things don't change, they don't go the way we want them to. What does that mean that God is bad at being God? No, we, none of us wants to go there in our minds, so don't. Don't. In their impatience and weakness, God was with them. Establish your hearts. That's, that's what we do. That's how. That's the, the, um, admonition here. Be patient. Establish your hearts. It's saying the same thing. Let your heart be established by grace, beloved. Hebrews 13, 9. Verse 12, but above all my brothers, so this is the most important thing here, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So he's not talking about cussing. He's talking about making an oath or swearing. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, he's repeating the teachings of Jesus here. So that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, try to do this very quickly here. What is the place of this admonition in this passage? What, how is it functioning here? What does it mean to swear like James is talking about here? Well, I think we all know I, I swear or I, I'm willing to take an oath. So it's to go beyond what should be sufficient with you saying yes or no. It's icing on the cake of your word. Right. And then when we really want somebody to believe us, we start talking like that. We, we up Our vocabulary. When we want to prove how sincere we are, how right we believe we are, that's how we talk when we don't think normal words will be sufficient to make somebody believe what we're saying. I swear to God, which don't say that, but that's, I swear to God, I'll I'll pay you back. I swear on my mother's grave that I won't steal or, or something like this, right? Wanting to make the person we're talking to think, well, certainly they're telling me the truth or they wouldn't swear on their mother's grave or whatever, which... Don't do that either, right? But why would speaking like that be an issue? And why would it lead to condemnation, James? I believe the way it's functioning here has to be understood by its context. But above all, when he says that, he's not introducing a new topic, right? He's not changing directions here. It's related to the call for patience which is what all 7 through 12 are all about. That's where it falls. It's presented as the most important aspect of patience. How does that help? What does it have to do with patience? Beloved, we don't need to secure things here by our own words because we can't guarantee much of anything. So we don't need to even talk as though we have the power to make things happen. Think again about 4.13-17. It's very much all tied to that. If you don't plan without taking into account the fact that God is sovereign, then don't talk that way either. Right? That's, I think that's what's happening here. Why are you swearing? Why, why would I take an oath? What do I have the power to make sure happens? Actually, I can have every good intention in the world. Like, like I, you know, I, I swear I'll pay you back. I swear I won't steal. Well, what if I don't have any money? What if the economy tanks and I can't give you? Like, there are things beyond my control. That means I that I should live in light of, down to the details of how I speak. We aren't in charge of making anything happen. Not enough to swear and take oaths. I don't think it's a sin to take a mortgage out or something. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think that's part of life in a fallen world. I think it's a matter of what we believe about ourselves that is really the issue here. Like I'm, I don't think... My son or daughter is under condemnation, and they say to me, "I promise I didn't do that. I swear I didn't do that." I, don't, I, don't. I think this is talking about our hearts and, and the things that make us impatient and grumbling people, because we aren't in charge of making much happen at all, which feeds whether or not we're patient people, whether or not we believe that. Right? What makes us impatient is that we've lost control of the situation we wanted to control. That's how it fits into taking oaths and swearing. What What are we doing? Don't live like that. You're going to become impatient and frustrated and angry all the time because you don't have the power to do even what you want to do. We swear and make oaths to secure things over which we ultimately don't actually have any control. This in and of itself is proof that we don't believe God is going to keep His Word, right? So speaking in such ways is the epitome of impatience when seen in this light. And I believe the warning about condemnation is there because what such doubt and impatience ultimately ultimately reveal is that we don't have faith in God because we think it's all on us. And we're in control of all of it. We don't need to try to make everything happen. This is what makes us impatient. We start believing that we are God. So not only should everything go our way, but I can make everything go go my way if people stay out of my way. So we can't be loving. We can't serve with a, a pure heart. Hence the grumbling even within the body of Christ. And, and this is Scripture's way of saying, look, nothing here is, is, is that important. Like nothing here is going to last. What are you invoking heaven for swearing oath taking and all this just so somebody will believe what you say you should be able to say yes I'll do it and they believe you and no I won't and they believe you and no icing nothing here is worth swearing on beloved and again I'm not talking about like a covenant in marriage this is not what James is after that's a good covenant to make and when we make it before God, we must keep it, right? This is this is the way that we talk, which is important because it shows our hearts, right? And we, we don't want to believe. Sometimes we surprise ourselves by what comes out of our mouths. So maybe we need more help than we think, right? Maybe it's not so crazy after all that we might be struggling with impatience here and we doubt the sovereignty and the goodness of God and so we're angry and we grumble and I think that's what the Bible says is exactly what's going on when we're like this. Swearing is a way the world thinks it has control. Nothing that, be that could be guaranteed by human words and human promises is valuable enough to last for eternity, beloved. Nothing that you could accomplish by swearing over it. Because if, if, if humans can do it, it's not eternal. Right? So, went longer than I wanted to tonight, but but while we wait for what God has promised, the return of His Son to gather His people to Himself, to punish rebels and put an end to sin and evil, while we wait for that, let us be a patient people. We don't need to be frantic. We don't need to be neurotic. We need to be at peace because our God is in control all things, even the details of our lives that mess with our ability to be patient from the church to the restaurant to the marriage to the kids. Right? It doesn't have to go our way for us to be okay. It doesn't. That's what the Word of God is telling us. Look, at, It doesn't, don't swear, don't let it get that bad. It just, it doesn't have to go our way for us to be Okay. Eventually, the belief that it does eats away at our hearts until we're ignoring or questioning the character of God. Which will eventually turn us against Him. To condemnation, it may be. So, beloved, establish your hearts in the sovereignty, compassion, and mercy of your Almighty God and all that He is for us in Christ. Patience is a virtue not necessarily as a matter of character. Patience is a virtue because it testifies to the faithfulness of God's Word. So, while you wait, remember He is sovereign. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He will not fail you. He will not go back on His Word. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So let us pray in light of that that the Spirit would produce His fruit of patience in us. The same spirit that has sealed us as a guarantee that we are going to receive our inheritance.